Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you don't have to talk if you don't want to. It is the month of October in the year 2021 somehow, and our selection this month is Rika Aoki's Light from Uncommon Stars. It's a sci-fi novel about violin prodigies and interstellar spaceships disguised as donut shops, among many other things. Today's guest is Rika Aoki. She is here for a spoiler-free chat about the book. Rika, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Oh, my gosh. So happy to have you. I thought this was just such a beautiful and heartfelt novel, and I have a lot of questions, so this is great. Um, I want to start with talking about the characters. I don't think it gives too much away to say we kind of have three main characters. We have Katrina, who's a trans runaway. We've got Shizuka, who's a violin teacher who made a deal with the devil. And then we have Lon, who's an interstellar refugee. I mean, in a lot of ways, at first glance, you would think those are three different books. Did you always envision such different characters in the same story? Absolutely. A lot of this comes from my own personal experience. When one is queer and a person of color, one has many books going on at the same time. So Hmm. what would sometimes happen is I would be speaking to my family and then suddenly my friend would call uh, who's another writer and I would have to switch books and always know where I left the last one. Also, many in my family, for better or worse, aren't very accepting of queer and trans identities, and I still love them very much. So I have to remember where I was in the book with them, hmm. you know, when, when I see them, and then take, take up my own story and then become something else. And uh, through it all, it really gives one, paradoxically, a very strong sense of self. You know, I've been writing this way for a while, but when I really was analyzing it and asked myself why, a lot of it was because I wanted to affirm that it's okay to have these multiple plots going on into one's own life and one can still be whole. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. I've thought a lot about intersectional identities, I think, as a lot of us have, especially these days. But to think of them as different books, I find fascinating and gorgeous. I think every interaction I have, every interaction we have deserves its own book. If I ask you, who would be the side character? My family, Hmm. my writing, my love for music. Where would the side character be? They have to be their own books. I just love that. That reminds me of a tweet I saw from a book critic recently who it was like a selfie that he had taken. He was walking down the street and he's had headphones on and he wrote something along the lines of like, I'm feeling very much like a main character today. And I thought that was really beautiful, too, because, you know, those moments when you're just looking around and you're like, this is me. I'm in this movie. Like, that's such a pleasure, too. I think it's kind of a similar phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the problems with being a person of color or being queer or being transgender is we've seen ourselves as side characters and so very rarely the main character. And uh, 
I would like with this book and with so many of the other queer science fiction books that are coming out, you know, in mainstream, even Asian cisgender men Mm. have this experience of not being the main character. So it might not be a question of queer or race. It just might be a question of marginalization. And I wanted my book to give the impression that the margins were defined by me as writer and I was cropping the picture as opposed to presenting the world as it is that I'm focusing on these characters, not because they're more important than the other ones, but I just happen to be writing about them. This is where I chose to crop my picture. Mm -hmm. Every character in my book, right down to without spoiling the person who delivers the tangerines can Mm -hmm. be a main character in, in their novels. Yes, I just love that so much. So I want to turn to music because it comes up a lot in this book, actually in a lot of different ways. And one of those ways, as I kind of mentioned, is the selling your soul to the devil trope. It definitely fits into a larger storytelling tradition, especially about musicians kind of trying to get, you know, better skills. Uh, Obviously, you have quite a spin on it. But why do you think the like demonic musical tradition exists? I think that there comes a time when we feel that we're honestly at the limit of our own talent mm-hmm. and we, we are, we're spent and somehow the world has been unfair to us and life has been unfair to us. And I know that feeling because, uh, and I've seen that happen and the devastation that it can wreak upon so many talented, brilliant artists. Uh, I come from a community where there are a lot of dead people. And this idea that I can't give anymore, I'm so tired, there's just too much. And then at that point, who wouldn't make a deal with the devil to continue? Uh, I also wanted to show that in some cases, because I don't want to disparage those who felt hopeless, I don't want to portray them as weak, but a lot of times that impasse can actually be a signal that it's time to grow that somehow there's something that's missing, something very, uh, very intrinsic, something that's very basic that we're not getting right. Because anytime you don't feel that life is, is a dynamic growing thing, there's something wrong. And so all of these characters are forced to grow. The funny thing about the deal with the devil is the deal with the devil becomes a catalyst for for growth, even when the roots and the branches seem to be dead. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's such a good way of putting that. I love it. Um, so did you really take time to learn how to play the violin as you were writing this book? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Um, why? Because I respect <laughs> the violin. Um, I'm a, okay, so I, I play a few instruments. I'm, I'm primarily a piano player. Uh, I also have played guitar in a band and I play some flute and I play, I play a lot of harmonica. Never, never, never <laughs> would I have thought to play the violin. There's, there, there are two instruments that I just have never been able to make heads or tails of, and that's the violin and the banjo. And they're tuned kind of the same way. So um, mm-hmm. I decided that let's see what I can do with, with the violin because I didn't feel entitled to write about something that I knew absolutely nothing about. Well, in a lot of ways, this book does feel like a love letter. I mean, it's a love letter to music, but to the violin specifically. Oh my gosh, the violin is so neat. For a while, I was thinking about giving up the piano and going to the violin. The violin is such a beautiful instrument. Um, It's so much more 
I'm sorry, Valerie Goldis, if you're listening, you are my piano teacher, but um, it's such an intimate experience to play the violin. It's right there against your ear. You can feel it vibrate. Um, with the piano, you play with pretty good intonation if the piano is in tune. With the violin, you have to have your own intonation, and you can't really lie. You can't fake intonation on a violin. Uh, so the violin was doing for me everything that the music I had played up till this point had not. Now, by no means am I very good at it. You know, I can, you give me some sheet music to some Christmas carols and I'll play along now. <laughs> but um, one learns some things by actually handling what they're writing about, the feel of the fingerboard, uh, the correct and incorrect bow hold, the smell of the rosin mm -hmm. when it kind of dusts up. Mm -hmm. And then with the intonation, I just keep saying how the sound seems to build when you hit your intonation right. Uh, the other strings resonate and what a bright and beautiful feeling that is. I have grown up as a trans woman with a voice that is not playing in the same register as I imagine. There's, there's also a sonic dysphoria that happens. And uh, the voice that I have now, I, you know, to a point, I accept my voice, but there are times when it comes out and I'm just thinking, oh, just a little, oh, but with the violin, it's an even playing field. And suddenly I can play Puccini. I can, I can play as high as I need to go and it's all on me and there's no physical limitation that I have. And so the violin is, um, is really beautiful. There's a really gorgeous scene in the book that I think speaks to exactly what you're talking about with Katrina, who, as I mentioned, is a trans woman and, and her teacher asks her to sing along thinking that that'll kind mm -hmm. of help warm her up and get her used to the tune or whatever. And, and she's immediately really mortified and her teacher doesn't really understand why. And it takes them a minute to kind of like talk through why. And from that scene onward, so often the violin is referred to as her voice and it's just gorgeous. Thank you. The trick with scenes like that is it's so easy to just dwell in pathos to say, you know, you don't even know what my voice sounds like. And just leave it there and, and let it hang. But I wanted to show that, again, this leads to a discovery of another voice that might not function in the same way as we might think our voices function. But to a musician, it's kind of the same thing. And what she does through the voice, through both singing with it and speaking with it, which comes in later, uh, I think rivals that of you mm. know some of the best poetry I've ever heard. Katrina, I'm talking about her as if she's alive, but she is to me. She, she knows what she's doing. She's a great musician. Yeah, no, that that feels right to me, too. I definitely want to talk more about Katrina because I think she's a fascinating character. Um, but I have one more music question, which is about video game music specifically, mm -hmm. which which has a really interesting role in this book. I think kind of speaking of Katrina's voice, like it's it, it's it's what Katrina plays. It's what she kind of gravitates towards in terms of feeling artistically rewarding, I think is fair to say. Mm -hmm. And people respond to it. It's extremely evocative. And I mean, arguably, it's probably a lot more accessible than Puccini or whatever, too. You must be a gamer. Yeah. Are you interested in that world? Very much so. Although sometimes when I write, I don't have time. But the thing about video game music that people don't really understand well two things first thing is trans people have been involved with electronic music from day mm -hmm. one uh secondly though 
if you look at the old video game music and how it came up, when the technology was primitive, the, the composers had to be resourceful with the capabilities of the technology at the time. And as the technology has improved, different elements have been allowed into video game music. When at first, video game music pieces sounded very scratchy, and they were maybe a few seconds long because they were interludes between waves of aliens. And then later on, as the stories became more evocative, you had the symphonic uh, music that was, you know, that you could you could play Undertale, for example. Suddenly you had these different themes that were happening. I think those of us growing up with video game music can appreciate how how closely music and visuals have been married in in video games uh, since the 80s and uh i find it extremely fascinating one of the things about playing something like puccini is that there's never this feeling that the best puccini is ahead of us hmm. whereas with video game music the best video game music is still ahead of us it's out there in space somewhere and i have no idea what it's going to sound like and and th that's what i love and for for those of us who kind of want to escape this world and even sometimes the music of this world, even though it has some very beautiful things, but want more, I think that both gaming and the music that accompanies gaming um, is sublime. More with Rika Aoki in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So we've mentioned Katrina. She goes through a lot in this book. Um, early on, she's just been beaten by her family. She needs to run away from home. It's obvious she's been abused for a really long time. She's not widely accepted as how she sees herself in a lot of the circles she moves through. She goes into sex work to make ends meet. Um, I mean, these are these are difficult truths. This, you know, obviously speaks to a lot of trauma. I'm curious, you know, especially given the fact that this story also involves spaceships and devils, why you still kept in those elements in what could have been a completely fantastical story. First off, you know, it's like, why wouldn't I? I, I feel that people who have gone through what Katrina has, frankly, in some ways, what I have, and many of my friends have, we deserve to be starship captains. Yeah. We deserve to have, to be the little princess. We deserve to have our, our moment in the spotlight. And this is where I really credit my publisher, Tor. And this is where I really credit the science fiction listening community and the readers, because I think that uh, somehow through all of their, their activism and, and their agency, there was room made for a book like this. 
I think this book still surprises a lot of people because I am talking about things that, to be honest with you, in queer literature just happens. In fact, if you read a trans memoir and you don't see these scenes or scenes like it, you, you wonder what's going on. But I wanted to bring it here because um, when you, for example, look at uh, traditional space opera, there's no denying how exhilarating it is. There's no denying how much fun it is. And uh, what I really wanted to do with my work is to bring something exhilarating and fun to my neighborhood. Hmm. But if I tried to obscure or to lessen the sort of the injustice that's happened to my neighborhood, it wouldn't have come off to me as believable. And it really wouldn't have come across as believable to the people in my community who might be reading this book. A couple of my friends read this book and like two paragraphs in, they just kind of looked at me and they said, all right, you got this. And it, what I find really funny about this, uh, well, not funny, haha, but just, just interesting is that trans people read this book and they think, wow, my gosh, what a gentle book. What a soft book. Hmm. What a kind book. And the people who are farther from the queer experience, the trans experience will say it's devastating. And maybe it is, but for many of us, this is just another day at the office. So I hope this book bridges worlds. There's no right or wrong way to interpret this book. I'm not saying that if you're shocked at the, uh, at the violence or at the injustice or at the danger, you know, all of these horrible things that your interpretation is wrong. In fact, I value it because please make our world better. I mean, a phrase that I've seen used to describe this book, which I think kind of speaks to what you're talking about, too, and is just really lovely, is the idea of it, of defiant joy. Mm -hmm. That was actually a line I threw in because uh, <laughs> originally uh, the publisher was wondering what to call it, you know, just and uh, I was talking to my editor and I said, you know, I don't want this book to sound like anybody has given up. And I don't want this book to have this sort of fairy tale ending where it was magically given to them. No, no, they fought for this, all of them. As we all fight for our futures, they're fighting for theirs. And so defiant. Mm. And, you know, it's like I refuse. And even for me, right, to uh, as, a, as a writer, to be writing a book about stars and space when I can just tell you how many dead people I know. It would be very, very easy for me to use the rest of my life morning. But I feel, and I made a decision that if I write good and happy things, when I meet all my friends, you know, in the world to come, you know, we can share some happy stories. So my defiance is for them. I'm going to cry. That's beautiful. I think too, there's a real sweetness to this book. And I guess there's kind of a literal sweetness when we think about the donut shop. I mean, it is tender. It's lovely. It's sweet. Um, I keep going back to the word sweet. Is, is the donut shop really based on a real place? It's based on a couple of real places. Okay, so uh, first off, if you go into Los Angeles and you fly into LAX, 
it does feel like sometimes you're coming into the city on a starship, <laughs> especially at night. But then along La Cienega Boulevard, uh, to your left, when you're driving north, you're going to see this giant thing called Randy's Donuts. And it's this huge plaster donut. Have you seen Randy's? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there it is. It's like Randy's Donuts. And you're just thinking as a writer, that's rude. But, you know, you, you, you. <laughs> It's beautiful. And I was looking at that and I was thinking, what if that really were a functioning Stargate? <laughs> what can we do with that? Um, but also within the donut community of Southern California, uh, there's a huge Southeast Asian presence. And I wanted to pay some homage to the way donuts have kind of been where refugees go because it's fairly easy to run a donut shop. You don't need a lot of English. You, they point, you say how many, we're good to go. And so uh, it's been really intertwined with the Asian community there. And I've been to enough donut shops at night where it does feel like you're in a starship because donut, donut shops are open late. And I don't know, um, many of you listening are writers, you know, a lot of us are night owls. And sometimes you go into the donut shop and it's it's as if it's the last bastion of civilization. <laughs> That's so amazing. So speaking of the donut shop, yes, um, there's a narrative choice that comes up a couple times in this book that I thought was really compelling. It's in a couple different contexts. In a couple ways, this story arguably starts after what would be main plot points in other books. Um, I think about uh, Shizuka, who is the violin teacher who has a deal with the devil. Um, but also speaking of the donut shop, the fact that Lon and her family are interstellar refugees. Um, I think especially in the case of Galactic War, like you could have written that epic space opera war book, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm curious why you decided to start the story after that. Because I'm the type of person, if somebody gets hurt and the person hurting them is running away, the first thing I want to do is tend to the person who's hurt. To me, the galactic war, it's not a story about war. War happens. War, to me, has been played out. We, we know why people go to war. We, we, actually, we don't. It's always stupid. But we know why they go. <laughs> well, we you know, know it's stupid. You know, yeah. you know, we know it's stupid. We know they're going to war. Uh, but then a lot of times stories end when the war is won. Someone's got the sword, the dragon's dead mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Sauron's gone. <laughs> what about the families who have lost people, the families who are displaced? What about the families, you know, who no longer have homes and they're just trying to make it there? To me, uh, those stories are every bit as heroic as... Uh, the ones that get so much more press. I wanted to talk about uh, the women who not only were left behind, who were just left because they had agency. And they said, I'm taking my family and we are leaving now. And if you want to go play soldier, go play soldier. I'm taking the family. We're going to make donuts. <laughs> I just, yeah, I thought that was really fascinating and I really appreciate it. And I, you know, without giving it away, I think the final scene in the book really speaks to to the importance and the the seed of hope that you're planting with this book in a number of different ways. And I just thought it was really profound. Thank you. I think this is, again, why it's so important for publishers to have writers who are, you know, who are women or are people of color or who, uh, who have been displaced, who understand what conflict brings from a different perspective. Do you see this book as part of a series? 
I see it as part of a continuous universe. So my next book is actually going to carry on in the same universe. So I'm working on one right now. And then actually, it's a tie over to my first book, Himalaya Hilo, which is published in a small press. Uh, There's actually some tie over. So these are all kind of connected in this sort of magically real universe that's flexible enough for me to dream in. Rika, thank you so much. This has been such a gorgeous conversation. I'm so grateful for the book and I just really appreciate your time and your point of view. This was incredible. Oh my gosh. Thank you. great is Rika. Her book is called Light from Uncommon Stars. It is lovely. You should go get it and read it and then tell us all of your hot takes by recording them on your phone and emailing the audio file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Do it before we tape on Friday, October 22nd. I'm super excited about our panelists too. We have Jen Northington and Swepna Krishna. They are both awesome people and you might remember we actually had them on Nerdette recently to talk about the short story collection they edited about Arthurian legends called Swordstone Table. They're just great people. We had so much fun. We were like, hey, let's read a book together. So it's happening. Read a book with us and hey in the meantime you know we post a lot of book recommendations over on instagram you can find us there and on twitter at nerd at podcast also for corgi content you can follow me on instagram i am at greta m johnson we also have a very bookish facebook group a nerd out listener recently asked in there about audio recommendations for a road trip and it was so much fun to see all of y'all chiming in with great ideas you can join that group all you got to do is go to facebook.com slash groups slash nerd at headquarters and we will see you there as always thanks for listening and reading along y'all you're the best we'll see you on friday okay thanks bye nerdette is supported by the sympathizer podcast from hbo join host philip nguyen in conversation with the cast crew and author viet tan nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic hbo original limited series Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.